He's a singer, songwriter, and musician who's been a staple of the Las Vegas music scene since the 90s. When he's not performing, he's creating and expanding his business ventures in more ways than I can keep track of. Please welcome Sean Eiferman. I'm Aardvark Girl, and this is Business for Self-Employed Creatives. Sean, as long as I've known you since sometime around the late 90s, you've been an actively performing musician, whether playing in your old band Epstein's Mother, which is where I met you, uh, as a one-man act all over Vegas or traveling to perform in Australia and everywhere else. It seems like you're always doing what you love. That's not always an easy thing to do when you're a musician, but what has kept you going all this time? You just said it. Find out what you love. Right. I mean, I've been really, really fortunate on the musical side of my endeavors. It started 35 years ago. I'm 51. And since I was 15 years old, I've been making a living uh, butchering songs uh, wherever there's a bar and a place to plug in some stuff. I, I just got really, really lucky slash fortunate. And it's, you know, comes with hard work. My dad has accolades and he he has always said that most of those accolades come from a quote that he put on the back of his business card for years, which was, I'm a firm believer in luck um, because the harder I've worked, the luckier I've been. So you got to put in the time. That whole 10,000 hours thing was was back in the 80s for me. And so I, I just got lucky in that, uh, you know, you work hard at the stuff that you love to do anyways. And then somehow I found myself again, really lucky being based here in Vegas. No offense to Epstein's mother that you mentioned or anything that I've done in my musical endeavors, but I have a feeling knowing what my talent level is, I think that if I was in Portland or Boston or anywhere else but the entertainment capital of the world, I got to blame Vegas. I give a lot of responsibility to my whole career, to the fact that if you want to be a working musician, this is it. This is the Mecca. So I've been really fortunate to be based here. That's a huge part of the equation. A lot of people, at least that I knew, musicians more in the 90s, early 2000s, the big complaint, because at that time, everybody was chasing the record deal. It's not really how things work as much anymore. But there was this idea that in Vegas, they just wanted you to do covers. And a lot of artists, they want to do originals, which I respect and I understand. But you've been able to do both because I, I don't know that you give yourself enough credit. I think you're an amazing songwriter and singer and guitar player. You're very entertaining, which is why your one-man acts work so well, because it's part comedy almost. But you in Vegas, because we're such a tourist-heavy city, those covers are important because they want to hear what they know, because they can sing along, and that helps them have a good time. I never saw you have that ego about it. You'd sneak in some of your own songs here and there, but you would if somebody requested a Huey Lewis song, you would find a way to play Huey Lewis, I'm sure. It's really funny that you've observed that and it's, and it's stuck with you because I try to do it subtly over the years. As a songwriter, I made a living just writing songs in the 90s. So I've had stuff placed in TV and film. And as a songwriter, it's a different ego. It's a different beast that you're feeding because the truly creative side is really out there. And so people don't know what they like. They like what they know is so accurate. The Huey Lewis request would come in and I would be like, Hey, uh, if you like Huey Lewis, you're going to love this. And I would lie, fib, whatever you want to call it and go, you know, this is off of a Japanese import 12 inch dance remix of a Huey Lewis tune. Look, I'm never going to see these people again for the most part. 
right? So I can get away with a little bit, kind of like a one night stand and just go, Hey, uh, again, if you love Huey Lewis, you're going to love this next song. And I would play one of mine. And that's how I would pepper, like you mentioned, like kind of sprinkle my original stuff into those cover sets where they just want to, you know, sing Mustang Sally and Brown Eyed Girl. And, and, and it became the best of all worlds as a songwriter with merchandise, with a CD to sell and music to share. I would also kind of tag those original songs with, hey, if you love that last song, there's a copy of it on recorded material that you can put in your little player in your car and take me back to Ohio with you. So it worked. I actually, you know, moved some merch and uh, got to fulfill my own original songwriter bug. And, and I don't think anybody ever left one of my shows ever. It was like, well, I thought I had the best time of my life, but that, those original songs he played. Whoosh. You've played for local bar crowds. You've played for audiences with over 100,000 people. It would take up the whole episode if I named everyone you've performed with. But favorite is always such a tricky word. But what are some moments you'd consider career highlights? There, there's two big shows or, or two, two times that I've performed on polar opposite sides of the spectrum. One is I found out that Prince was rehearsing, was practicing for his residency at the Rio here in Vegas at a small little club right next to the MGM Grand. And a friend of mine happened to own that club. And he goes, hey, I know you love Prince. And he goes, get down here. Just get down here. That's all he told me. And I get there and there's like maybe 300 people at the Empire Ballroom basically watching like the big Afro drummer from Lenny Kravitz. She was on drums. The bass player from Earth, Wind & Fire, the guy that has the microphone that comes up from his belt. It was just like this all-star band, these beautiful twin uh, girl uh, backup dancers and backup singers. It was just nuts. And like a few hundred people and Prince. And so I kind of knew what was going on, but didn't know what was going on. So I real quick got a sign because I knew it wasn't a show show. It was a rehearsal. And I held a sign in front of him for like two and a half hours that simply said, can a funky white boy get up and jam with you? And persistence wins, I guess, because out of nowhere, like two and a half hours into this thing, he goes, come on up. And so I got to sing with Prince. And of course, because of what I wrote, he started playing, play that funky music, white boy. And the band kicks it. It was just the most epic thing ever. Uh, Eddie Murphy was sitting in a booth. I don't know, 15 feet from the stage right there. So, of course, I was like, sexual chocolate. Uh, so the highlight of singing with Prince is I also made Eddie Murphy laugh. So it was just one of those like next level out of body experiences. Just unbelievable. That was the best. That's the highlight of my whole music career. Like that was nuts. And I've shared the stage with a lot of people from Grammy winners to just, you know, my friends and everything in between. That was the highlight there. And then as far as like stage shows, I'm booked or the band was booked or whatever. Uh, it wasn't quite a hundred thousand people, but we, I think the last big June fest that we did was right around 50,000 people. And it was like journey. And, uh, I mean, we just opened the show. I've always just been the bridesmaid. I've never been the bride. It's never my show, but I'm happy to be there. You know what I mean? That's not a complaint. That's just an observation. Hey, a lot of those brides never played with Prince. Uh, uh you never know. Anyway, so those are the two things. June Fest was probably the biggest single audience that we felt like co-headliners. We were just the local unsigned opener, but it was really spectacular. Like that's a, it's just a different thing. 
the music industry itself has changed so much through the years. So you're used to adapting. Uh, but then this pandemic came and wiped out all live performances. But you're still performing. I saw you do some virtual concerts. You do the singing telegram videos for people. You've done private events. One thing I thought was really special was in the beginning of all of this, you, st you started the Sean and the John series, which I can't say without laughing, but you did that to raise money for other musicians. How did that come about and what was Sean and the John? Yeah, well, 35 years into it, trust me, I, I am not Bill Gates. I, I'm still one of those like book a show, play a show get paid for that show and then hurry up and book another show. And so when there were no shows to book, I do okay. And apparently a lot of other musician peers of mine weren't. So it only took a few days for people to be like, Hey, what are you doing? Can, uh, do you have any gigs? Can I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay rent, you know, a couple of weeks, all of a sudden we're like really bad. And I mean, it affected everybody again, the pivots that we all make and trying to figure stuff out. Yeah, I, I set myself up for other things, you know, besides because I, I knew that my hands weren't going to be able to play guitar forever. I'm not going to be able to sing forever. Again, I have a tattoo here that says everything is temporary and 35 years is a good run. So I think some of my friends knew that I had plan B's in place and were like, dude, can I borrow some money? Can I like it got weird. And so all of a sudden I, I go, well, let's do a little fundraiser for these people. Like, I, I don't know if it'll be good, bad, whatever. And the best sound and lights and not piss off my family was in my downstairs bathroom. And so that's where I started doing the Facebook lives. And it was all charity. People could donate whatever they want to donate towards this thing. And 100% of those proceeds, I didn't take a dime. Uh, we raised $10,000 in like four and a half weeks, five weeks. Everybody, each day that I did it, nominated another musician. So if all of a sudden, like Amanda McCune got nominated that day, when we finished the thing, I would be like, all right, Amanda, you, you got nominated yesterday. Today was your show. Who do you want to nominate? And so I think the most powerful thing, aside from just sending money to strangers and, and people, some of them I knew, a lot of them I knew, uh, was that you know I, I got like Facebook messages, video Facebook messages from a handful of people that were like emotional, like... I think I know who you are, but we've never met. And all of a sudden I got a Venmo <laughs> from you. Um, and we didn't know where the groceries were coming from this week. So thank you from my family to me. Like, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was a real attitude of gratitude moment all from my bathroom. It's pretty cool. I use the toilet as my little bar. That's where my, uh, you know, it got silly some days. It was just a bottle of whiskey and I was, <laughs> you know, we, no one knew how to cope. I don't think there was a right way or a wrong way to cope with it uh, early on. And so that was one of the pivots. We, we just, we raised $10,000 in a few weeks from my toilet. <laughs> Not many people can say that. And it's, it's funny because people have this perception of Vegas and what Vegas is, and it is a lot of those things, but we do have a pretty strong community in certain areas of the city. And that proved that. Agreed. Like, it's yeah. funny. You mentioned the original stuff. The only thing that's missing here is the songwriting culture. You know, Nashville yeah. is obviously such a mecca for songwriting. Uh, I don't think people realize Seattle didn't become the grunge thing until all those guys in the late 80s, early 90s started writing together, not doing shows together, not hanging out together. But at two in the morning, once the gig was over, you know, they went to a, a coffee shop and hung out and, and wrote together. I think that's the one big, huge thing that's missing here. I've tried to piece it together a couple of times over the years and everybody wants to just Again, play Mustang Sally. 
It's weird. All the biggest bands in the world that have come from Vegas, from the Killers to... Slaughter? <laughs> sure. Imagine Dragons, a, a Panic at the Disco. Yeah. Like none of these bands could get arrested here as original projects. Like nobody knew who they were. And then they, they, you know, they went out of town or the Killers went out of the country and started their whole careers somewhere else besides here. We did that too. Like Epstein's mother back. It's funny. We would go and do a show, you know, with whoever, with Collective Soul uh, in Atlanta, Georgia and make like eight bucks. But it was cool. Like, like, I can't believe we're in Atlanta doing a show with Collective. Like, it was cool. And we'd come home and people would think we're the coolest band in the world because we just got done opening for Collective Soul in Atlanta, Georgia. But they didn't realize you like, you know, we were all really, really struggling financially to do that or it just didn't make sense. And then we'd come back and I would book like a three-day weekend at the Tropicana Lounge. True story. And it would pay for totally comp, put money in our pockets because casino budgets back in the day were substantial. Uh, that band was a band for almost seven years and we made most of our money locally doing those like hush kind of, we didn't promote those gigs. And then all of a sudden we're like, hey, we're opening for the Goo Goo Dolls and Guns N' Roses on New Year's Eve at the House of Blues for free. You know what I mean? <laughs> we, we didn't get paid for that. I mean, what a spectacular opportunity to be able to, again, share a stage with Guns N' Roses and Goo Goo Dolls on New Year's Eve in the entertainment capital of the world. And then literally the same night, I wish I was joking, we had, I booked at Texas Station <laughs> starting at 11 o'clock at night. So we... You know, at like 8.30, we find ourselves at the House of Blues doing all that and then, you know, signing boobs and like <laughs> the craziest thing. And then, hey, everybody, we got to go because we got to go play the thing at Texas Station. You mentioned that you would play those local gigs, that that's what supported you financially. And then you also mentioned the plan Bs, which is something that is important when you're a musician. You can have that dream that you're going to make it big and that's what's going to support you. But it doesn't work out that way for a lot. So beyond music, you have an entrepreneurial spirit. You're a entrepreneur. I saw it in one of your bios. <laughs> and yes, I, I had to call you out on that one. But it seems like you're always trying new ideas to keep busy. You designed the solo station, which keeps you and your gear more compact and mobile. You've partnered with wine companies and fitness companies. There was a castle involved at one point. So I don't imagine you ever get bored, but how do you decide which business ventures to pursue outside of your artistic musical endeavors? Oh, I, I'm going to circle back around to the beginning of the conversation. These are all things that I, I'm passionate about. I joke all the time. Like I, I go, well, what am I going to do? Sell insurance? And that is no offense to insurance agents. I think life insurance is one of the greatest products in the history of mankind, but it's just, it doesn't resonate with me. That doesn't get me up in the morning to go do something. Uh, my existing business life is really a one, one trick pony. And I mentioned this before we were doing, like I woke up at seven o'clock in the morning and put on safety glasses because I was outside at 7 a.m. this morning, fiberglassing a 13 foot, uh, sanding the fiberglass on a 13 foot uh, scamp trailer. I'm now in the RV business and it circles all back around. This is going to be a, a weird connection, but it's true. Uh, I bought an RV back in the thirties, <laughs> thousand years ago <laughs> off the side of the road for nine grand. And that became when Epstein's mother had to go do shows in Colorado or myself or, you know, family vacations or whatever. We hopped in that breaking bad uh, POS, you know, it was a junker. 
but it got us from A to B and it was a fun way to, to travel. All my favorite family vacations were road trips in that RV with my kids. And they'll attest to that at 23 and 25 years of age, they'll still say, you know, my favorite vacation, family vacation was this one trip we did to San Diego or up in the mountains. We, you know, we went skiing. And so out of nowhere, when COVID hit, we, we poured gasoline on that fire. And I now have 14 RVs, whether it's trailers, motorhomes, uh, I'm staring at a sprinter. We, we got all of them. Some of them are, we're customizing and, and renovating and flipping for sale. And some of them are in a rental fleet. But yeah, the uh, Freebird RV fleet, which is obviously, you know, Freebird is not the free bird that I give to the random drunk that always requests Freebird. I repurposed that to be the name of the company. Uh, and so it's, it's something I've always loved to do. Road trips have always been like fun. You know, it's a cool thing. And so we're now in the road trip business. Uh, the Castle Project, that's on the big, big and I mean, that was a $90 million project that we started three years ago, even just talking about. And then in talking about it, we put together a business plan and a business team and a pretty impressive push to, to raise the 90 million. We found the land. Uh, like it gets crazy when you start doing stuff. And I'm going to wrap a bow on this. Instead of going through all of them, Amanda, I'm going to tell you this. There's two things that I tell people all day long that ask me similar questions that are in my industry. Like musicians that are like, hey, what happens when the gigs dry up? What happens if I break my hand snowboarding? You know, all that stuff. And I go, well, you need to focus on two things. And that is the books you read and the people you meet. And I say that like a mantra all day long. I buy 30 to 40 books every year, beginning of December, and hand them out. Uh, Livingston Taylor, James Taylor's brother, wrote a book called Stage Performance. And it is the Bible for anybody that wants to understand what we do, the way we do it in a better way, in a different way. He's the guitar master at Berkeley School of Music. He's, un, he's I'm not going to say he's more talented than James Taylor, um, but he's way less famous and just an unbelievable human being, exceptional guitar player, as you can imagine. And he wrote this book. And as I tell my fellow musician, entertainer people that you got to meet, you know, different, better people and read different, better books. It's, it's everything. The people that you meet and the books you read will change your life. You don't have to worry about what to do. You'll figure out a way how to do it by those two things. They'll just kind of present themselves. So everything in my Sean entrepreneurial uh, endeavors have come, I can, I can bet my life on it. I will bet my life on the fact that anything and everything that you're talking about really stems from, I have met exceptional people on my break. I know musicians that disappear because they're not really people, people, and they don't want to go shake hands. And, and the second I unplug on a break, uh, on a, like a work gig, you know, a steady type of booking, I'm out, you know, exchanging business cards and talking to people, finding out why they're there. Is this a birthday? You know, is this a bar mitzvah? A, are you celebrating an adult circumcision? What, why are you in Vegas? And those connections have rippled into all of these things, like all of them. And then I compound that with, you know, I don't need to watch another rerun of Game of Thrones. Also, I stopped reading, reading and started listening to audiobooks. And I don't want to go on and on about this, but it really is 
the reason I am wired the way I'm wired as far as trying new things and wanting to do new things and popping up, you know, out of bed, ready to, to do new things. Cause let's face it, the average musician works for a couple of hours a day, four days a week. So if you're not doing anything as a plan B, you're just fucking lazy. Well, that's what I think separates you from so many where there's this, the stigma that you're, you have to be a starving artist. You have to be struggling and that's going to be the case if that's what you're looking for. But there are so many opportunities and you've never had to give up what you love. You're still playing music. You're finding ways to do it. And music, just because you're a musician doesn't mean that's all you do. You can have other interests too. And if you're able to follow those passions and make money from them at the same time. And that supports you. So you don't have to take the insurance job. You can own, own your time and be mindful with how you spend it. And you have that freedom to do whatever you want to do. I don't understand how that's such a bad thing, but it's because you're willing to do the work. And that's what so many don't want. There's that lack of accountability. Like, I just want the, you know, I'm a really talented, whatever these opportunities should just come to me. And like what you said about luck, you have to work really hard to be this lucky. And that's, it's what I tell people all the time. Cause I've had somebody say, well, you wouldn't understand because everything just works out for you. Like, yeah, I work really hard to make it work out for me. And I believe that it will. So that's a, a big part of it too. Yep. Yeah. And I have another tattoo on my back. That's the yin yang. It's about this big. And I really believe in that whole balance in all things, in all things. And so that's part of it as well. You have to have some kind of good habits, you know, versus bad habits to kind of counter what music provides, which is, you know, drugs and sex and like all the stuff could pull the average person over to the other side. I've been a Boy Scout also most of my life. I really, really enjoy uh, monogamy. I'm a fan of being married. And being in relationships, I've been in mostly long-term relationships. I haven't been the dude, the groupie musician guy. Uh, I mean, I've had moments, but, you know, I'm only human. Uh, but for the most part, I'm not that stoned, late, dressed like a hobo, trying to bang the, you know, manager, like musician. They, I, I want to thank all of my peers globally for making me the tallest midget in that in that conversation, it doesn't take much. It's a, it's a shift. I think a paradigm shift of, I could be a musician or I could be in the music business. And I don't know what happened. Quite frankly, uh, it was probably somebody I met or a book I read. Um, but I decided a long time ago to be in the music business. I, I didn't mind bands I was in or myself being a, a thought of as a product. I had no issues with CDs and t-shirts and hats and condoms with the band's name on it and pens and, you know, whatever it, it took to be able to balance my creative life with a business model. And that took, again, I'll, I'll say it over and over and over again, that took reading some books, right? I mean, I think and grow rich. I was 27 the first time I read it, how to win friends and influence people. I don't know, like a, a month later, and all my musician buddies were like, yeah, I read the Rolling Stone interview yesterday about Bob Dylan. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, 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 I read. <laughs> um, and so again, I, I'm, I'm not better or worse than anybody. I, it's just a different 
way to spend your time. There used to be such a stigma about making your music a business. You couldn't put your music on TV, especially in commercials, because now you're selling out. And now that is what people want because the record deals, they're not lucrative if they even exist. You have to have that following on social before a label will even give you a chance. They're not even going to talk to you unless you already have the hundreds of thousands of people. For the record, Amanda, it's not these days. It's always uh, been that way. Oh, I, we met Tom from MySpace. Remember the, <laughs> his profile picture? We met Tom. I met Tom, shook his hand. He was sitting in a 10 by 10 booth at either the NAM show or it was South by Southwest. So we thought we were already on our way. I think we just finished a, a merchandising meeting with Nikki Six from Motley Crue that wanted to do a t-shirt thing with us. Like, we've made it. And, and then we're walking around the thing and, you know, none of that came to fruition. Everyone's just talking a bunch of trash, but uh, it, was, it was very interesting. We walk booth to booth and you're kind of taking in all this stuff. It, like it's a huge trade show for those of you that don't know what South by Southwest is that might be listening to this and MySpace. And so we already had a website that at the time you spend a lot of money getting a website developed and we could sell all of our merch on that website. And so this guy, Tom is in this booth with like two computers. And he's trying to explain MySpace and it's, you know, you can't sell anything. You can only play three songs. And we had a full record done and like all this stuff and you can't do this. And it's kind of, and you just get friends to come and, and we walked away from that booth going, that guy's a dipshit. And, and like six months later, we started to get the offers that we got from, you know, 33rd street records all the way to, to universal and Interscope. We like, we got a handful of, interesting conversations were going on. The Incubus Hoobastank record deal that happened for Incubus and Hoobastank collectively were initially kind of thrown into the uh, conversation and equation for Epstein's mother for that band, which is crazy to think of because both of those bands are so much cooler than we could ever pretend to be. And it was very weird, but we were on somebody's list. Let me put it that way. And I think the deal breaker across the board just six months later was some guy at some label in some office going, Oh, well, what are your MySpace numbers? That was it. Amanda, I'm not kidding. They didn't want, they actually didn't care how many CDs we sold on our own because we, we had outsold bands like Incubus and cause they hadn't hit the radio yet. They, they weren't who they were. And our numbers were, our sound scan numbers were decent for an unsigned, you know, band, but our MySpace numbers were because we walked away from Tom laughing. I believe Incubus and Hoobastank got their deals because their MySpace numbers were huge and they got huge in like three months. Nothing else. I mean, they were, those are both great bands who had big radio singles and were ready, were poised for it. But I think what pushed them over the edge was Tom, son of a bitch. <laughs> Tom and his thumbs up. And that was for anybody listening that that was that's maybe a little bit younger than we are. That was the beginning of social media. That was you could have your band page and you could put your your songs on there, snippets of things. And it, it was an easier way if you didn't have the full fledged website to get the word out there. And obviously, MySpace didn't have the longevity and other companies have taken over. It's just changed things. And it's, I was talking before we started recording how I'm perpetually stuck in the nineties music wise. And part of that, I, I don't embrace social media in the same way only because like, I just watched this documentary called fake famous 
And it, they, they did this social experiment to take three people who didn't have any kind of following and turn them into influencers. And just the way that most of these people now, and they're talking about kids in the younger generations, they don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer and pilot or whatever. When they grow up, they just want to be famous. They want to be an influencer. And they were, they were showing how you can take a toilet seat cover and make it an airplane window. So you can have a photo that looks like you're on a private jet and they're buying their followers. There's all these bots and then you have to buy the likes and buy engagement. But then these big brands take a look and they're like, oh yeah, look at this. Like this people really respect this person. I'm going to work with them. And it's all based on that little lie. Just not unlike you saying that the, your song was a Huey Lewis song, <laughs> but it's that it's such a different culture now. And we, we have to adapt. And that's a big part of it. You don't ever want to be the, the guy from the tower records. He was like the CEO in, in that documentary where he just flat out said, I don't, I, the MP3 is not going to stick around. He didn't believe it. Didn't listen to the people around him. And Tower Records didn't make it. When we first started Tower spending Records money on it. websites and stuff like that, I remember seeing the slogan for the company that developed the website for it, my first real website. And it said, if you're not online, you are flatline. That was 20 years ago. It stuck. It's still stuck in my head, probably because it sounds like a lyric. With all of this adapting that you've had to do because COVID and just the changes in the industry, what do you see going forward? Are you still involving music in your life? No, my, my, I say this all the time too. My, my crystal ball is busted. Um, I am so flattered. This is an amazing thing. It's not lost on me that I'm still in Vegas and there's still people dying for concerts. You mentioned it to this day, it's 374 days. You know, I've marked the day like a prison sentence. Like I can't believe I haven't <laughs> seen a concert in 370. I, I wish I was exaggerating again. I, I'm not Springsteen uh, or Prince or, you know, anybody relevant e even, and I get a text pretty much every day now, every day. Somebody's coming to Vegas for a birthday party. Where are you playing? I want to come see you play. Like, that's a crazy thing for me. You know what I mean? In the entertainment capital of the world, again, what I do at the level that I do it, I'm always like, man, that's nuts. I, I, that is so flattering to me that, that somebody wants to come here with all the options that are even available now, even with restrictions and whatnot. And they want to see me, you know, sit on a stool that spins around uh, with a guitar in my hand and, and just put your tunes is, is crazy to me. It's crazy, but it happens on a day-to-day -day basis where somebody hits me up on Facebook and says, where are you playing in the next two weeks? We'll be there on the 14th. First thing I say is, well, they always ask what's Vegas like, what's it going to be like in April? And I say the same thing. My crystal ball is busted. I have no idea. I have no, no clue. But right now, I have no shows for the foreseeable future. I, you know, I, I say the same thing over and over again, unfortunately. I don't have a different answer. So for me, the future looks like that. The future is we have 14 RVs in the fleet right now that are, like I said, e either rental or, or renovation and flips in the Freebird RV fleet. You know, I still would love to pour gasoline on the fire that was the aforementioned solo station and some of the ideas I have in my head for products. I had moments where I wanted, to, uh, my last name is Eiferman, the nickname shortened is Eif. So all of a sudden, like show entrepreneur or silly word play, uh, Eif style. Like I created an LLC a few years back that is just solutions for working musicians. 
that's really, and I've got six or seven products that are ideas and, and solutions for a working musician. And so the average, uh, I've got guitars everywhere here. So the average uh, guitar stand is this big clunky thing that you got to take with you to a gig and it falls apart. And there's some challenges that come along with just a guitar stand, whether you're a bass player, a guitar player, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, why isn't there a guitar out there? Wait for it, wait for it, where the stand is built into the guitar. And you, and you just open it up and set it down. Ta-da! Why didn't that exist before? Um, I don't know. But I put a couple <laughs> of little magnets in, mm-hmm. and that just clicks right, right and stays on the guitar. And you can play, and it doesn't catch. It's, you know, it's like credit card thin. And uh, this is prototype number one. Mm-hmm. And I'm in conversations with Fender right now to, to, to sell the license, the design to this as a licensed Fender, who's been making the Fender Stratocaster for a thousand years without any real modifications, uh, to start building and selling the Fender Standicaster. <laughs> huh? Huh? I feel like the sham wow guy just then. Um, but I've got guitar stands, you know, everywhere. And this I can put down anywhere. It stays on the guitar. It's built into the guitar. I don't know why nobody's done it. There was a the one model of a guitar company called Guild back in the 60s, early 60s, that had a flat bottom. The guitar was actually flat. It wasn't rounded. And they had a little a bar that came out like this, and you could lean it back. And nobody's of the major, I, I mean, I've done all the research. I have the patent information, and you know, I've done all the stuff. I don't know why nobody's done it. But, but I want to do it. I mean, I've done it and now we'll see what happens. And so that's what happens. That's how, that's how this all works. So the future for me is I would love to, to pour gasoline on that fire. I'd love to turn this RV thing. I mean, it's only been four months. We've only been doing, we have 14 units in the fleet. It's been just under five months now and we haven't sold one yet. Right. We just finished renovation. We just crossed the finish line, renovating three of them out of the 14 of 10 days ago, 11 days ago. So, uh, you know, you list them and we have had looky lose and it's, we've got momentum going in the right direction. Um, but until somebody writes a check, this is just a very expensive hobby. <laughs> and you do it with your family though. Your wife and your kids are involved too, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And how much better you get to take this time, spend it with your family, doing stuff doing something that you love doing and you all still, even though your kids are, are in their twenties now, you're all still together. And you, I know you have your blended family with your wife now. It, it doesn't sound like that's such a bad life you've got there. It doesn't suck. I mean, I've taken a angle grinder to this knuckle that went down to the bone. Some of it sucks. I'm, I'm used to being a little bit pampered when it comes to <laughs> my digits. And now I work with my hands. I'm a day laborer. <laughs> all day, every day, which is different than working with my hands, you know? Um, and so there's, there's a few little downsides to it as I've learned how to do everything that we're doing with, you know, power tools and, and all of that stuff. Well, that is all great advice. I was also going to ask you, if you had one piece of career advice for other creatives out there, what would it be? Collaborate. You don't know everything. 
My, I, I get asked all the time, uh, who's the most influential guitar player in your, you know, early years. And as you've done this, you know, who, uh, which, which songwriters have meant the most to you and helped you. They're all people that I've been in a garage with rehearsing with or sitting in a pizza shop writing a song with collaborate 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 that doesn't mean you have to be in a band because musicians are dipshits and trying to like they are it's like herding cats on any given day i said it i've learned all of the people that i list when i'm asked that question are the first band i was in in high school john hour the most influential early guitar player that i can name Became the guitar player in the Posies. We were talking about that you love the 90s. So my sort of eighth grade through high school band mates and people that I played music with, I went off to college in, in Northridge, California, and they just moved down to Seattle, replaced my ass and made a record. And that first record for the Posies, uh, Frosting on the Beater, sold like 25 million copies in Japan alone. John Hour is that guy but nobody knows who who he is in the guitar like people are waiting for me to say steve vai and eddie van halen and you know those guys paul gilbert there's some unbelievable guitar players that i look up to but collaborating with those people understanding how other people write songs figuring out why a drummer plays what a drummer would want to play in a song versus what's best for the song like there's a whole bunch of things that you just can't it's it's empathy i guess it's, you know, treat everybody how you want to be treated is an interesting way to look at your musical endeavors because part of collaborating is the audience. And until you put yourself in the seat of that person out there, you can't really make a living out of this. You can't do it at a certain level. You have to make it about them. That's lost on a lot of musicians. They don't get it. They're super talented, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I've seen a janitor sing their ass off from some elementary school in Kentucky on The Voice. Like, there's talent everywhere. Collaborate with some people. Understand what it's like to be on a team, you know, whether it's writing songs, anything. And then audience-wise, I got lucky. Again, entertainment capital of the world boils down to one thing. Make it about them. That's good advice across the board. That applies to business in general. Even if you are, you know, there's this word, the solopreneur, and you're somebody like me that I'm running my own business and I do everything by myself, but I don't do it by myself. I might be the only one in the company, but there are people I talk to. I, you know, I, like I said, I was learning how to do some of this audio recording stuff. Tansy Aster is a company that I use to do my audio engineering and sweetening and making it sound pretty because that's out of my wheelhouse and not something I want to dedicate my time to doing. But it's always about the client and business. It's not, what, what do I get out of this? And if you come at it from that angle of how can I help you, they help you in return by paying you and keeping you involved in these projects. But it's always a collaboration. You have to use your instincts and, and trust yourself and, and go with what's right for you. Yeah. But including other people, getting other perspectives is really important because otherwise we just stay on that one track and we kind of miss all those extra opportunities on the side. And we're in an interesting time to do that. People do all of a sudden have some free time. And if they want to learn software for audio or whatever, it's the time. I, this is going to sound a little dramatic or whatever, grandiose, but I think there's going to be an artistic renaissance. There, I said it. I think what we've done in the past almost a year, unbelievable, 
What COVID, I believe, globally is going to produce is the time and the energy and the passion of the average creative person has now been kind of massaged into this, well, what do I want to do? You know, nobody's got any money, so it doesn't matter anymore that I don't have any money. And they just go down the checklist and they're like, oh, I think I'm going to become a sculptor or, you know, whatever. I think there's going to be poetry, books, music. I think the films that are going to come out, some of the scripts, the stuff that's going to come out of this shutdown will be a renaissance. I think some of the paintings we're going to see and that uh, there's going to be an artistic explosion. Renaissance is a little dramatic, but it's the first word I thought of. I think that's what's going to happen. I've seen it happen with my peers uh, all over the world. I've got a friend in South Africa that I never thought would be uh, playing drums and all of a sudden starting to write songs and getting better at playing acoustic guitar. And then six months into COVID, just decided to start writing and recording. And he's a former uh, international rugby champion. I guess nine feet tall, 400 pounds of solid muscle. You would never guess that he's, you know, made a record. But that's what's happening. And so his stuff is great. But, you know, there's going to be people, a lot of it's going to be terrible as with, with anything. You know what I mean? The first person that says, well, I'm going to start sculpting or painting or whatever. You know, some of it's going to be awful. Some of it, because of this, there's going to be people that have never done it that are going to be the next Kurt Cobain that were like, well, it's not like I took lessons and I, you know, I learned two little things and all of a sudden I'm in Nirvana. Playing your guitar upside down. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, Grohl, you know, is a great example. I mean, he's the best example of, you know, he said it. I've seen interviews where he just says, look, be exceptional. That's it. Make yourself do whatever you're going to do so that people can't ignore what you do and the cream will rise to the top. It's good advice. So where can people find you out in the social media land and elsewhere? I think the best place still is just my name, just Sean Eiferman. I hate that you can spell it six different ways. I joke all the time. I, I don't remember what year it was. Early 93, 94, I was on the cover of the Review Journal as Sharon Pfeffer. <laughs> I got to open for Steve Miller Band at the Thomas & Mack. Huge. Like for me at the time, that was pre-Epstein's mother. Like that was a big deal. And I did an interview and over the phone and somebody was handwriting whatever they were writing down and then handed in that piece of handwritten paper to whoever they handed it to. And then it went to another person, like the cup, you know, thing. And Sean Eiferman handwritten became Sharon Pfifferman on the cover of the review journal opening for Steve Miller. Anyway, so Sean can be spelled S-E-A-N, S-H-A-U-N. It's a pain in the ass. Um, and then Eiferman, I, I forget how to spell my last name sometimes. So that Vegas guitar guy became my little nickname moniker thing. But e either one of those will, will find me on the interwebs. Yeah, Sean Eiferman, S-H-A-W-N, blah, 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 whatever. Not Sharon. You won't find me if you Google Sharon Pfifferman. I'll spell it in the show notes so you can find him. Well, Sharon Pfifferman, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. I could talk music forever, but I'm glad to see that you are doing well. And I'm very excited to see how Freebird turns out for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And 
right back at you. We, we, got, we jumped right into this thing. And uh, for those of you watching and listening, uh, this young lady, wait, where are you? Right there. I don't know if that's going to be the format when they actually see this thing, is one of those exceptional human beings. The smile on her face lights up the rooms that I've seen her in over the years. Her love and passion and support of live music is exceptional. I can go down the line of why you are who you are. And the support, I think, is the, the biggest thing. You know, people don't realize what it takes to feel supported. And it takes people like Amanda, like you. I, all of a sudden, I'm talking like you're not here. Well, thank, thank you. I really appreciate all of that. No, thank yeah. you. Uh, you know, from the YouTube, Bono, you can really see what it takes to dedicate yourself to a lifestyle of love for something. And I'm excited to see what's in your crystal ball in your future as well. And hopefully this is one of the vehicles that'll get you where you want to be. 